Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning. We will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you'd better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to Pages and Popcorn Podcast. This week, we will be discussing Bastard Out of Carolina, the Dorothy Allison novel turned television movie. You know, we don't do content notes always. We kind of, I, I used to sometimes do them in the show notes, but I, I definitely feel like if you're not aware of the subject matter of this particular book, I'm just going to say it right here, content note for rape and incest and child rape so there that is i have said it now um yeah if there's anything that we ever went over that needed a trigger warning this is it for sure for sure um and we will not be graphic in our descriptions but i feel like if you were one of those people who were like oh i might listen i might watch the movie i mean you might I feel like this movie definitely needs a warning on it, but uh, we'll get we'll get to the movie in a minute. But first, real fast, our little intro here. Uh, as you know by now, you can reach us at Pages and Popcorn Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, Pages and Popcorn Podcast and KMMA Media. You can visit our website, kmmamedia.com slash Pages and Popcorn Podcast. You can check out our other podcast in the KMMA Media Network, which is Ghostthropology, which is currently on hiatus right now, depending on when you're listening, but it will be back with some very exciting guest speakers coming up in the next couple months. And there is potentially another third podcast coming to the KMMA Media Network in the next couple of months. So make sure you're following us all on all the places so that you can keep up with that. And lastly, if you would like to support this podcast, we would love your support. The easiest way probably is for you to tell your friends to listen. The another great way for you to, to help us out is by liking and sharing us on social media and telling your friends to listen. And we would love to have your financial support if you are so inclined. We have a widget on the website, which is called Buy Me a Coffee. So you can pretend that you're buying me a coffee and... Uh, I, I will, I'll drink that coffee. I will translate that $2 and 50 cents or whatever it is into, uh, well, probably actually future rentals and, and books, but we do have a coffee budget here at pages and popcorn podcast because Jennifer and I thrive on coffee and you can be at one of our patrons at the $5 level, which gets you the episodes early and that warm, fuzzy feeling in your tummy. And then just for everybody's knowledge, we have supplemental episodes that we will be releasing we have, we have old supplementals we're going to make available to everybody, and then we have new and exciting upcoming supplementals that we are going to make available to everybody. No more paywall for that. We just want you to listen. And 
yeah, so support us at $5 at Patreon. Support us by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and wherever you listen. Tell your friends. We have a listener feedback survey that you're more than welcome to take that'll just exist now. You can take whenever you want. And um, our most fun way for you to get involved is our monthly pop-in. So Jennifer, since I've talked a lot, do you want to tell the, the kind folks about our monthly pop-in event? As I was taking a sip of my coffee. <laughs> so the pop-in event is basically we chat about whatever. Uh, if you want to ask us specific questions about our podcast, about books, we're more than happy to talk about it. Otherwise, it just tends to be, hey, what's going on, baby? Yes, we occasionally will have um, guest, guests in our pop-in future. Uh, future and also past special co-hosts uh, have been known to come by and we talk about the upcoming episode so that's a good way to, to find out what's coming down the pike the other thing is that if you have a big opinion about what we've said or didn't say about a particular book or movie combo that's your chance like let's sound off and talk about it or if you just want to talk about books or television or movies or anything in general we're there for you it is the last monday of the month at seven o'clock p.m on Zoom, and the links and more information are available on our social media platforms. So that was our intro. I think we're done with the intro. Bastard Out of Carolina, the debut novel of Dorothy Allison. The 1992 book, which is semi-autobiographical in nature, is set in Allison's hometown of Greenville, South Carolina in the 1950s. It is narrated by Ruth Ann, aka Bone Boatwright. The primary conflict focuses between Bone and her mother's husband, Daddy Glenn. Book recap. The book opens with Bone relating the details of her birth. Bone's 15-year-old mother, Annie, gives birth to her after being seriously injured in a car accident. Annie, who is comatose during the delivery, is unable to lie about being married. Her mother and older sister, Ruth, attempt to give a false name and are caught in their deception. This results in Bone being declared a bastard, an illegitimate child born out of wedlock. Annie, who hated to be called trash, spends the next two years unsuccessfully petitioning to get a new birth certificate issued without the word illegitimate stamped on it. This opens her up to the ridicule of the customers at the diner where she works, and most of the town. Her family does not quite understand her obsession with this, but they try to support her as she attempts to get Bone declared a non-bastard. At age 17, Annie marries Lyle Parsons and gives birth to another daughter, Reese. In short order, Lyle is killed in a car accident, leaving Annie all bitter, grief, and hunger. After remaining single for a few years, she begins to date a man named Glenn. He is the son of a socially prominent dairy owner. Two years later, as a result of her becoming pregnant, they get married. Annie gives birth to a stillborn baby and becomes unable to have children. During her labor, in the car outside, Glenn sexually assaults Bone. Bone is horrified and scared and doesn't tell anyone. Time passes and Glenn doesn't bother Bone for a little bit. Maybe this was a one-off. Bone is confused but develops healthy relationships with her Aunt Elma, Aunt Raylene, and Aunt Ruth, as well as her Uncle Earl. She also has a gaggle of other uncles. Soon the family's fortunes plummet, though. Glenn cannot seem to hold a job. 
mostly due to his anger management issues and his sense of entitlement. He begins beating Bone regularly whenever he loses his temper. Annie feels bad, but not bad enough to leave him, even when Bone ends up in the hospital and the doctor's like, yo, someone has been beating this child. To shield Bone from Daddy Glenn's outbursts, Annie eventually has Bone stay with various aunts, including Aunt Ruth, who's very sick. Ruth says Glenn is just envious of Annie's love. You know, boys will be boys. But she also asks if Glenn has ever messed with Bone, and Bone almost tells, but doesn't. Bone then enters a period of searching for values. She falls in love with gospel music and Christianity. Her favorite book of the Bible is Revelation, since in her mind it centers on retribution. She eventually gets baptized and wants to help her uncles with their spiritual lives. She moves out of this phase and has a brief streak of meanness, which leads to breaking into the Woolworths 5 and 10 store with her cousin Gray in tow. Though she does not steal merchandise herself, the act of breaking in is like retribution for the time that she stole candy from the store years before and was forced by her mother to return it while listening to the condescending remarks of the proprietor. She also uses a very dangerous sharp hook as a way of getting in to the store. We will talk about the hook and its symbolism. There's also a brief interlude where Bone befriends another girl who's an outcast. This is like an albino sickly girl, but they eventually quarrel and the girl calls Bone a bastard. And then before they can make amends, the girl is violently killed due to a fire explosion at a barbecue. Was it an intentional suicide or an accident? We'll talk about that, I'm sure, as well. One of Bone's favorite aunts, Aunt Ruth, dies, and after the funeral, when the relatives are at the casual wake at Ruth's house, Bone gets drunk and tries to use the bathroom. While Bone is trying to steady herself, Aunt Raylene, who has suspected abuse, notices the whipping marks on Bone's legs. Enraged, Raylene takes Bone to the front porch and has Bone's uncle look at the mark that Glenn has inflicted upon her. From the porch, Bone hears her uncles and cousins violently beating Glenn, who has to be taken to the hospital. Another aunt goes a little crazy, and another aunt is a lesbian, but this is mostly background noise reminding us about the patriarchy and the cycles of abuse. Annie finally leaves Glenn, and the three, Annie, Reese, and Bone, live in an apartment for a little while, but Bone is pretty sure that her mom will eventually return to Glenn. Bone tells her mother that she will never live in the same house as Glenn again. Her mother then vows not to go back to Glenn unless Bone comes with her. When Glenn discovers this, he attacks Bone at her Aunt Alma's house, breaking her arm and violently raping her on the kitchen floor. Annie walks in on him and fights him off. Glenn follows the two of them out to the car, begging Annie to kill him rather than abandon him. To Bone's disgust and amazement, me too, Annie ends up crying and throwing her arms around Glenn. Annie drops Bone off at the hospital and disappears for a while. While Bone is recuperating at her aunt's house, Annie shows up with a new birth certificate for Bone, this time without the word illegitimate stamped on the bottom. She asks Bone's forgiveness and then leaves without telling her where she's going, but Bone knows that she and Glenn and her little sister Reese have probably left the state to start over a new life without her. Okay, so that was the book, like I said, 1992. In 1996, they made a movie, Bastard Out of Carolina. It was originally made by TNT Networks, but eventually was finished and distributed by Showtime Networks. There's controversy, which we'll talk about. It was directed by Angelica Houston. And 
I'm not going to do a whole recap because it is very similar to the book. So here are a few of the highlight changes and then we will be done with the recap and we will just start our discussion. So again, the movie is mostly the same. There's a few changes. Earl, Uncle Earl is a bigger matchmaker and actually a smaller character though in the book, Earl was a very major part and you gotta love Uncle Earl, but in the movie, he was not quite as big. Um, we see Glenn's anger and fighting nature earlier in the film. Um, we also have Glenn ripping up a picture of Lyle and starting the gaslighting very, very soon with Bone. There's no little albino friend. There's no masturbation and no hook in the movie. There was a fair amount of masturbation in the book, but we will also talk about that. The mom doesn't leave Glenn and live in the apartment briefly. That doesn't happen. During their final altercation between Bone and Glenn, Bone threatens to tell Annie about the abuse. And this seems to be what the filmmakers are telling us pushes him over the edge. That's not exactly how it happened in the book. In the end, she's surrounded by her family as her mom abandons her. There's a bunch of people, whereas in the book, she's pretty much alone with just one aunt when her mother abandons her. And I know it's a small change, but I feel like it speaks to the themes. So I included it. And that is the end of my recap. Okay. okay. So <laughs> before we start our discussion, uh, something that we, we do sometimes is how, how did you come to this book? And or movie. I remember seeing an interview, I think it was on Oprah, but it was an interview about sort of the story and trying to get that movie made and distributed. Uh, so yes, there is quite a bit of controversy. Uh, it was originally commissioned by Ted Turner of TNT. And when he saw a couple of the scenes, including uh, one of the very graphic rape scenes, he said, this is not going to air on my uh, channels. That's it. And so they had to find a different distributor. So there was quite a bit of just trying to get the film out there, which is still really difficult to find. This is not an easy film to get a hold of. It's not at the library. There's an incomplete copy on YouTube that's free, but there, it's, it's hard to get some of the final scenes. It's a difficult movie to get. The book is fairly well known and widely praised that you can get anywhere. Um, I read it originally just because of sort of finding out about the controversy of the film and wanting to read it on my own. Um, I read it for a lit studies class and then again for book club. I came across the book in a library when I was in high school and was intrigued, started to read it and was profoundly uncomfortable and didn't finish it. And then read it in college as an assigned book in a in a in a women in literature class and uh was still disturbed but you know definitely saw the merit of reading it and was was glad that i did had the the pleasure of meeting dorothy allison years later and kind of vaguely remember at some point hearing that it had been a movie but it wasn't at all i wasn't watching television in the 90s. I didn't really have access to television until after the year 2000 at a continual regular basis. So it was not on my radar at all. And then, yes, here it is like on our list. Okay. So you're right. The movie is very difficult to get. You can buy the DVD on Amazon for $20. That's a lot to pay for a made for TV movie, especially if you haven't seen it. You can't rent it anywhere. It's not in Redbox. It's not on Prime. It's not on Netflix or Hulu. Um, I'm sure that there are illegal ways to stream it, but I don't do that. 
I did watch it in chunks and pieces on YouTube, which was very distressing because the sound quality, the video quality is bad. One of the versions has most of the movie, but it stops two minutes before the end. So then you have to go find the ending somewhere else. So that was very problematic. And normally we try very hard to make sure that the movies and the books that we talk about on this podcast are accessible. We don't want to be like, this book is great. You should totally read it. By the way, it's out of print, which is one of the reasons why Stone Butch Blues has uh, been on my list, but it's it's difficult to get. I mean, actually that one's free, but you have to get it as a PDF. You can't actually just read it. It's But it's still, it's out of print, right? And also it's not a movie, but they keep talking about making it a movie. I'm digressing. The point is that we try really hard usually to make it so that the books and the movies are accessible. And I just assumed that it like, okay, if it's not streaming, I can get it from the library or I can buy it for $5 off of Prime or whatever. And that's just not the case, which is which is interesting. And I don't know enough about movies that are made for TV, you know, and then released on the cable channels, if that's like a thing where they're more difficult to get or not, because I feel like, you know, we did, their eyes were watching God, which was a made for TV movie. And we were able to get that uh, through YouTube, but also you could get it really cheap on Amazon as well. So I don't know if it's just, there's a distribution thing about made for TV movies that just don't have the, the distribution contracts, or if it's this movie specifically that people don't really want to make accessible. But the cast is phenomenal. I mean, it is it is a well-casted movie. And a lot of the people in this movie went on to do a lot of important and, you know, very famous stuff. But we will talk more about the movie in a second. I just, I want to touch one more thing on the, on the adaptation aspect of it. Uh, I found this really interesting quote, and I'm going to put it in the show notes. But in 1996, Angelica Houston made her directorial debut with the film Bastard of Carolina, based on Dorothy Ellison's novel. Although TNT produced the film, its network executives ultimately deemed the finished film too harsh for television. They insisted that Houston cut the film's child molestation and rape scenes. She refused, thankfully. The subsequent controversy attached um, attracted press attention as the film lingered and aired for weeks. Here's the part I wanted to share. Houston summed up the irony. This is a quote from Angelica Houston. American television can handle documentaries on the Holocaust, but apparently not this story of one girl's real life experiences. I don't love the fact that she's putting the Holocaust versus a quote real life experience because it makes it almost sound like the Holocaust isn't real. So I wish that the grammar of that sentence was a little bit better, but I do appreciate the sentiment being that there's a lot of stuff that we we put on television because we know it's important. And then what we choose to not put on television, you know, it says something about our culture as well. So yeah, there's a lot of silencing of girls and women's pain and issues. And mm-hmm. that's been true since the beginning of movies. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All that being said, <laughs> I've, I've reread this book several times for various different reasons and book clubs. And uh, it's definitely, it definitely stays, it stays with you. And more than just the, the traumatic rape scenes and molestation scenes, but there's a lot of other parts that stay with you. And part of it is the writing is really beautiful. Unfortunately, so this is a thing. So the, the film, they, they, all the plot points are pretty much there, except for her friend and the hook and you know, the masturbation. Those are kind of like the main things that get left out, but like the main story is the same. 
but because it's a movie not a novel it really can't have the the texture and the context of all the uncles and and just the feel of this southern life and what it was like in the 50s for this family that was very poor and this institutionalized poverty and abuse cycles and all the cousins and then what's going on over here and then the beautiful poetry of Allison's words as she's describing not just like the river and nature but how people moved within the structures of their lives it's just it's it's incredibly well written and and that's just that's just a part that the movie and they took a couple lines from the move from the book and they have it it's laura dern doing the voiceover which is a little weird to me but okay um she's doing the voiceover for bone in the movie and they they seem to pick lines they were like these are important lines but they're not the best lines of the book they're a little earnest i don't know you know especially without the context of the rest of it it just it yeah so but anyways there's a fantastic uh, quote from allison she was asked what do you want people to get out of your work and she responded you know what nabokov called it that sob in the spine that's where you're reading and suddenly it just stops you and you're like ah that's what i want i want people to take a deep breath and if i'm really lucky i want you to throw the book at the wall <laughs> You know, it's interesting because I have thrown books at the walls, but usually it's because the writing is subpar. <laughs> this is a book that I, when I need to take those breaks, I clutch it to my chest for like, like to, for comfort. Do you know what I mean? Not, not because the book's giving me comfort, but more because I'm overwhelmed and I need to hold on to something and I need to like pull myself into a little fetal position ball. I definitely would not throw this book across I, the I like that phrase though, a sob in the spine. Yeah. For sure. Because, yeah, that's that's how this book will make you feel. It, it is horrific, but you know it's honest. Mm -hmm. It's very authentic. The voice is very authentic. And, I, you know, she's semi-autobiographical, so that makes sense. But, wow, we're very blessed to live in the time of Dorothy Allison, I, I think. So shall we talk about some of the, the themes? Absolutely. Okay. A big one, they, and I think that they're kind of part and parcel. There's family and forgiveness and i see them very very tied together so the first aspect of family you know like us versus them the tribalism the boat rights you're a boat right you know everything from your coloring to your mannerisms and then you have like the outlier people the the uncle's wives the aunt's husbands and they're they're not really boat rights they're allowed to be part of the family but they're they're still seen as being a little bit it's different. An us versus them so even when you're kind of part of the clan you're not really yeah and i i find that in that that whole concept interesting because it, there's no way for it to be sustainable because then all the cousins they're all boat rights right but then you know they they start marrying off and then are like the next generation because it's going to get diluted because you have to have an influx of the other right so i just i find that 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 idea of it of it of a familial clan, just fascinating, you know, partly because it's just not how I grew up or anything, but so that's really interesting, but also like the town and the people in the town and the outside world is definitely, you know, the outside. It reminds me a bit of other books that we've read. So like Jaws, when you're an Islander or you're not, and even if you move there and you live there, you're not one of us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the tribalism issue goes beyond, um, you know, just family when we're talking about larger themes 
but it is definitely one with this. The uncle has a wife, one of the uncles, um, and she leaves with the kids and it's this incredible betrayal. And it feels like, well, because she took my kids, it's, you know, they're my boat rights. He's almost more upset at the loss of his children than he is at the wife. And he has these string of girlfriends, but nobody cares about them. They're just like, oh yeah, that's the new girl. Right. That's Uncle Earl who, okay, I have to say, I love Uncle Earl. <laughs> like, Uncle Earl is a great character. He loves his family. He loves the, the, you know, and Annie's his favorite sister and Bone is his favorite daughter. He even says the favorite daughter of my favorite, favorite child of my favorite sister, right? So she has this special good relationship, which thank God, because I would hate for this book to just be like, men are trash, right? And because we're not on Facebook, I can say that. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, sorry. Um, so she can, she has this good relationship with Uncle Earl and he's very protective. He's flawed, right? You know, he's got the string of girlfriends. He's got a drinking problem. You know, he's got anger issues like they all do. But, you know, you kind of get the sense that he's like, he's got his own code of ethics and he definitely appears to them. He's not an amoral person. It also goes a lot to being one of those flawed guys that is still very charismatic. Mm -hmm. There's some great sort of like visuals in the novel where at one point uh after bones uh mother when her second husband dies reese's father mm -hmm. and they said you know this is as old as you're going to look you're always going to look this age your face is almost like frozen at this step and all the women look kind of old and haggard and they have that sort of 100 mile stare and all the guys are much younger they're younger in their behavior they're younger in their looks so it's this kind of interesting dichotomy between women always carrying the responsibility and the guys who aren't. Well, and they, they talk a lot about that, how like the men are like the babies, you know, they, they're always little boys. And so they, the women, the aunts, the grandma, they don't expect too terribly much out of these men, right? Oh, they're just stupid boys and they're going to, you know, drink and hunt and drink and brawl and be stupid boys, but it's the women. It's our job to love them and take care of them and feed them and clothe them and da 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 and be like the long suffering women in these lives that hold everything together because we can't expect the men to do that. And it's so, even though this is the South and it's very patriarchal, it is, it, there's this element of, of who really has the, the power versus, you know, who is the bravado, you know, mm -hmm. kind of idea the front line because yeah, everyone's worried about the boat right boys and the boat right uncles and they'll kick your ass but it's the aunts who set them say i will go you should go punch him you need to go beat him up i would kill him you know go kill that guy um it's the aunts that say you know they, they're yeah the it's aunt raylene who sends uncle earl mm -hmm. out on to glenn yeah thank god and can you imagine what i mean and of course, Glenn has to leave town at the end because the Earl will kill him. Like it's 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 just understood that these men, these brothers now that they know that the abuse was not just physical beating abuse, but actual sexual abuse and you know bone being raped. Like Glenn is not long for this world at all. And I I I don't know, but I have to wonder if this clan tribalism family us versus them thing is. I know it's all over the place, right? I'm not saying it's just a Southern thing, but it feels like a very Southern thing. And I don't know if that's just because you and I happen to keep reading Southern books, or maybe it's because our next book is also very Southern or in a couple books from now, I don't remember our, our schedule, but yet, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's a lot of this idea in Southern books. What do you, 
am I? I, I kind of remember uh, seeing an interview with a writer from the New England area, and you know, he, he calls himself a wasp. Uh, and the biggest insult his mother could give another person was, "We don't know them," because. Huh. Even if you're not part of the family, you're either part of that social class or you're not. So there's a lot of us versus them sort of traditions. And it feels like being sort of on the Western side of the country, we just tend not to have that because of the culture that we came over in. Yeah, I guess you're right. Like California is such a freaking mixing melting pot of people who came from such a, you know, and then we're the we're the colonizers here. Like this is not our land, anyways. And we're more, I think, in the Western side, we're more aware of the people who were displaced because a lot of them are still here, right? We live in we live in Fresno, California. You know, like, you know, if you don't know some basic Spanish, then you're so well. Like, and and that's a good thing. I I'm not at all complaining, but it's it's very prevalent. It's very obvious that this is a mixed community here, where and and there's you know okay whatever. Um, yeah, so I, you're probably right about the tribalism being a little bit everywhere, but it just feels really extreme to me from the Southern books. And I'm thinking about like Hillbilly Elegy and stuff. And this book made me think about Hillbilly Elegy a lot because I feel like what Vance was trying to do in that book is what Dorothy Allison does so beautifully in this book. Mm -hmm. And she does it so much better. Uh so I would say tribalism is there, but it takes on different forms. So like the New England style tribalism, it's more society and you're either part of the society or you're not. Whereas uh, when we see Hillbilly Elegy and um, Allison's work is more family oriented. Yeah, well, and I, and I know that we're also getting, you know, when we're talking, you, you say New England society, I instantly think of like blue lads, like rich people, society, waspy society. When we're talking about Hillbilly Elegy and Bastard of Carolina, we're talking about the poor and, spoiler alert but there's a book coming in our thing where we're it's going to be a similar time period also in the south but non-poor people talking about their lives and so i think that that'll be an interesting thing to talk about too so we'll maybe put a pin in this about our our discussion of southern tribalism but uh, so there's there's prestige and then in linguistic terms there's something called covert prestige and it seems like this is a very society way of looking at it uh, if you look at uh, people say on Nantucket Island, you have, you know, the rich class and then you'll have the people who have the actual dialect of, you know, the poor who used to live there, or not the poor, but like the farming class that are being bought out because all these rich people are moving to this island. So it, it just strikes me as something very similar where with this group you have, we're poor, but that's going to make us that much stronger if we're part of our family. Yeah. And, and like family is essential in that part, you know, mm -hmm. because that's, you're protected by your family. Again, we're not counting on the law to protect us. You know, nobody tells the sheriff or the law people or even the doctors what's going on. It's keeping it very insular. And part of that is probably a fear of government interference. And part of that is shame. I think shame is a huge theme in this book. But then there's this idea of forgiveness, which I want to bring back in because I feel like it's connected to family in a, in a major way. And I saw this, this little quote, and again, I'll, I'll link it. So forgiveness is almost always possible among the kin, as Annie, Aunt Alma, Aunt Raylene, and Aunt Ruth have tolerated Uncle Earl's drunkenness and Uncle Wade's womanizing. However, an outsider like Glenn is not given the same level of compassion except by Annie, whose love for him is arguably pathological 
Yes. This raises the most important and troubling aspect of family as it relates to the characters and their devotion to bloodkin that is exhibited through the novel. Annie, in the end, chooses to abandon her firstborn in favor of staying with Glenn, her daughter's abuser. There's no rational explanation for why Annie's character would make such a choice, but it serves the author's purpose by revealing the poignancy of a mother's betrayal because it is picking outside of the family you know it's it's making that choice and the family will never forgive glenn they they might have forget can you imagine if one of the uncles had been doing something similar i feel like it would have been bad but i don't know if it would have been quite as bad as mm -hmm. this outsider daring to do it and that's troublesome on a variety of levels that's really common with families unfortunately so if you ever work in social work if you ever work in like child protective services that is more common than not it's a trope for a reason the stepfather abusing the, ch the child and the mother taking the side of the stepfather like picking them over the kid and i feel like it's that's it's it's a betrayal for a number of reasons but one of the ways it's a betrayal is because you're picking an outsider over your blood. And so I think we have that idea that, you know, you should pick your child, which I'm sorry, like, here's my opinion. You should pick your child, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just even if, even if it's a father and not a stepfather, like a child is the innocent. And I, mm -hmm. I love my husband, but uh, I will pick my child. I, I will pick my child. And I just, I, I can't even, I can't, the pathology of Annie's decision. And I know that it's common. I know that it happens that I have firsthand experience with this, with stories that aren't mine to tell. So I won't go into it, but like, it's so horrific that the choice that Annie makes and the fact that that does happen. Yeah. It is the worst kind of betrayal. And so it kind of goes back to that, you know, she's a bastard because in the end she's more of an orphan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what is more painful than being an orphan who has living parents? Right. Who, who choose you to not be your parent and not just choose to not be your parent so that you can have a better life, but choose to not be your parent because they selfishly would rather love your rapist. I mean, it's just, there's no, there's no coming back from that. It's just, it's just awful. And I'm terrified for Reese right? Like how much longer is Reese going to be safe now that Bone's out of the way? It's yeah, that was uh, kind of a constant question uh, is he never seems to go after Reese. And was it because he had Bone? I think it was be partly because she was older. So she was more of a threat. And then, okay, so, okay, it's a little weird because it is. It, it's complicated. It, it, it's very complicated. But one of the things that one of the aunts tells Bone is that Glenn is jealous of your mom's love for you. You should never make a woman choose between her child and her lover because that's just a bad choice, blah, 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 right? And um, in, in this aunt's case, it's because the aunt was a lesbian and she had a lover and she asked her lover to choose between her child and the aunt and the woman chose the child. And so now the aunt is sad. And she's like, don't ever give that ultimatum because you might not like the answer. And you're thinking, oh, but of course this woman chose her kid over, you know, and not just the love of her life potentially with Aunt Raylene, but also like choosing Aunt Raylene would have been like bucking social norms in the fifties. Like that's, it's a whole, there's a whole lot of baggage to choosing Aunt Raylene, not just child versus lover. Okay. But it's still, we have the precedent of somebody choosing a, a child. 
in in Annie's case, she chooses her lover over her child. But what we have been told is that she loves Bone over and over and over again. She's like, you're my special one. I love you the most. Bought all of this stuff. She she says that. And it's because like she loved Bone's dad, kind of, except that she never talks about him. And we know she loved Lyle, who's Reese's father like that when Lyle died she was you know so sad and like you said they said this is they said this is your face now this is like the saddest you'll ever be and I'm thinking no 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 don't ever say that to a 21 year old you have no idea what life is going to bring her you know what I mean like it's that's that's an unreal expectation so the fact that it was Bone who had all her love even though Reese was the child of her great love Lyle I it was a little, and so I have to wonder, and I chose to not look up Dorothy Allison's like actual history. I know that this is semi-autobiographical, but I wonder if there's, if maybe some of the fudging of real versus novelization came from that a little bit, because I, I just, I don't know, but it, it seemed a little awkward that, that the mom loved Bone almost more than Reese, even though Reese was the, do you know, I'm, I'm now I, I myself. I find that um, sort of convenient narrating mm -hmm. and not what's really what's going on okay you know that, that doesn't delve into the actual psychology of what's going on but it, it's just something that is an easy story to tell oh well bone you have all her love and so he's jealous uh, I, I think reese is a, a very complicated person in her own right where in some ways she's much fiercer than bone and in other ways bone's got this internal anger that is just boiling below the surface i always kind of wondered about Reese, because they have a protective sisterly thing going on where, you know, they're both in their kind of respective places masturbating. Um, Reese has her mother's underwear on her face. And it was like, that's, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, a little extreme. And I know that we're getting, we're, Bone is an unreliable narrator just because that, you know, she is and we're getting it from her perspective, but she wasn't obviously alive for part of her story. So she's telling us. And, yeah, she is trying stories. to figure out what's going on. And it's, it's not anything that she does. There's nothing that she does or her mother does. Um, it's all Glenn. It's why is Glenn doing this? Why did he pick her as, as the victim in this? Right. And in the movie, I think they try to explain like, he was jealous of Lyle because she's like looking at Lyle's picture and he like rips it up and he's like, I'm your daddy now. And it's like, eh. but OK, this is not in the book, but this is my armchair psychology. Glenn loves Annie. Right. We know this. OK. Annie's the mom. Annie's in the hospital, potentially you know, having the, the, their baby. And Glenn has this, this this warped relationship with his own dad. He wants his dad to be proud of him. He wants a son. He wants to like fix his relationship with his father through a relationship with his son who isn't even born yet. He's got a lot of expectations, all this stuff, right? As Annie's giving birth, Glenn sexually assaults Bone. I don't understand where that came from. It seems so out of the blue, but he does this. He, he knowingly does this. He's aware of what he's doing. It is not accidental by any means. He's ashamed and kind of grossed out afterwards, but also like angry about it. Like he's angry that it happened, right? So like, okay, you've got that. And then the baby dies and Annie can't have any more kids. And I was like, okay, so if we were getting this from Glenn's point of view, or Glenn was a religious person, he could almost say like, this is your punishment. This is karma, right? You sexually assaulted this child at the very moment that God took away your child and your chance to have more children with Annie and any chance you might have to like fix your relationship with your dad, blah, 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 blah. 
So I feel like he could now put all of that anger on bone that she quote unquote ruined his life by, you know, being a part of what happened in the car. Obviously she did not do anything to him in the car. It was obviously all him, but do, do you know, like, I feel like that is kind of maybe why his focused rage was on her. And she kind of symbolized to him like a guilt and, and, a, and a fear and, a, and an anger that's not controllable and this shame of this thing that he did. And so you know, what do people do when they're, when they're ashamed and they're angry, they lash out. And so I feel like that's why she got all of his rage and then eventually all the rest of it. I kind of, I, I have the same issue with like control, but I would, I kind of see a little bit of the opposite where, you know, he wants his son, he has all these things. He's in a very sort of desperate state where he doesn't feel like he has any control over his life, but he can control this little girl. Mm-hmm. You know, he can beat her, he can do these things to her and she can't really fight back. And so that's a way for him to control some small part of his universe. And yes, he does lash out at her, for his own guilt because he knows it's wrong on some level he knows it's an awful thing to do and so instead of taking responsibility for it or going oh wow i'm a really really shitty person and shouldn't do that it's like well i got away with it once i can focus it on her she's my now she's going to be my target right and then the gaslight and i i mean there's no reason it can't be both things yeah right but in my head that is why i kind of was like okay so maybe reese is safe at least for while Bone is there, now that Bone is gone, as they're starting over somewhere, they even say California or somewhere, how long until he's angry and he takes it out on Reese? Or will he start, well, now will it take it out on Annie because she's the one who made them have to leave town because of Bone? But you know what I mean? Like, who knows? But it's, it's not a happy ending for any of them. And I'm very worried not actually worried about Bone at the end. Like Bone is, is hard, Bone is angrier, but Bone is surrounded by family, which I think is important. Yes, this is where the author says that based on, you know, the parts that are based on our real life, it would have been too dark for the story because at least Bone has a loving family. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, oh, that's the happy ending? Oh, oh, Lord. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I can't imagine that they were thrilled when she wrote this book either. Well, her mother, she died when the, the book was published, but she did read lots of what had been written up until she died, but um, she, she read a great deal of the novel. So, you know, when you want to bring in forgiveness, I think that's part of having that therapeutic conversation where this is what happened to me and the mother acknowledging it, at least on some level and having come to terms with, yeah, this is what happens. And so there, there can be some healing through that, I think. Yeah. The acknowledgement. And I, I know people who have had similar situations to Bone, whose parent, the, the mother type, didn't acknowledge. And, and yeah. you know. And that's a big step just to say that this happened and to the right. acknowledgement that this happened. That's, and, that's huge. And there's, you know, the pathology of that is like, if you acknowledge that it happened, then you have to acknowledge some like guilt, guilt. right? You yeah. know, some Which is responsibility. Which yeah. Right, exactly. Which, you know, and that's the thing. It, it got to the point where Annie couldn't, pretend it wasn't happening because she literally walked in and saw it you know and if she hadn't walked in on and seen it you know even while it's happening bones thinking of, of all the ways he's going to explain this and how he's going to gaslight yeah, and he's going to blame her and uh-huh. that's part of her worries as she's bleeding on the floor 
oh, is mom going to blame me for what happened? Yep. And so it's like when he, when the mom shows up and she smiles, you know, it's very chilling. But at the same time, you're kind of like, yeah, because you want this proof to, to happen that, you know, he gaslight her the whole time. And mom either knowingly or unknowingly went along with these lies. She had to have known. I, I think she knew on a certain level. I don't think she knew about the sexual stuff. I don't think she knew how far it went, but she knew that he was he was physically and verbally abusing her. Definitely. But like, you know, Bone says like when he would hold her against his hip to beat her and she could feel him through his jeans, like, you know, and she's, you know, he's like coming while beating her. Like it's, there's, and mom then of course scoops Bone up and is like taking care of her wounds and isn't aware of like the, the level of perversion that's happening well who does the laundry i mean that's what i mean she, mm. she's got to know on some level that that's going on and so she tries all these things within her ability to diffuse situations to detract like distract him oh no okay can't do that with daddy glenn people usually do know okay keep her away from that uncle don't let the children play with that uncle because we all kind of know that that's the thing in the family. But because it's family, we can't go against family. So it's those levels of loyalty that are fighting within each other. That's my I mean. I, I, I think that Annie had to know to a certain extent that this was in every level wrong right. and awful. But she couldn't do, she refused to do anything until it became too blatant, you know, until the aunts showed, got involved or until the very end where she can't walk away from the I think kitchen. it had to be the outrage of people outside of her yeah you know, it couldn't have just been that her shame. it had to be the, the yeah the outrage of the aunts and the uncles and going wow I really did let this get to a level that it never should have gotten to right and again we're talking about shame now and mm -hmm. shame is a is a very good shame is a useful social tool to keep people in line whether it be you know don't say those words or don't do those things or you know whatever like have you read that book, that John Ronston book, all about shame? So you've been publicly shamed. <laughs> and he's talking about how, like, as a culture, shame can keep things in check, you know? Um, and, like, it can go too far if we don't allow people to have, like, an ability to, to get forgiveness and move on. Kind of before cancel culture was um, a hashtag. But he was talking about shame does keep people in check, right? And it is a thing. You don't want people to know you, you don't want to do bad things because people will know if you don't have a moral compass, at least social shame can help keep you in line. Obviously, you should have a moral compass, whether you get that from God or your mama or your heart inside, something should tell you what's good and right. But if you don't have that, then society can come along and be like, you fucked up, put you in the stocks or you fucked up. And now no one's coming to your restaurant because you said, you know, racist things. And like this, it, it was an interesting book. My point is that shame as a tool it can be used and in this case it's it's not until their shame for annie and for the family before something changes at the same time bones shame is misguided because she's ashamed and she has nothing to be ashamed about but it, it ties in to her masturbation which is something that i feel like we have to talk about too in this book uh, so a quick thing on shame is that it can be a useful tool it's usually abused uh, so like, this is why we get things like the scarlet letter is who really should be ashamed. It's not the person who is getting shamed. Yes, that is very true. And in the modern days of Twitter, um, Naomi Novak is going through this right now with one of her books where she was trying to be inclusive and messed up. 
And even though she apologizes, it's like nobody's letting it go. And after a certain point, it's like, well, do you just want to keep harping on this person? Or do you want to let her acknowledge that she messed up and learn and move on? Right. I mean, I think you have to have that that second part of being able to learn and move on. I definitely and make restitutions and you know we've we've taught our child when you say you're sorry that's not the end the words i'm sorry it's not a complete sentence it's i'm sorry that i hurt you in this way and how can i make it better like you have to have mm -hmm. all three things you have to acknowledgement acknowledge the specific thing that you did and then have the how can i make it better if you don't have the how can i make it better then you're just parroting words there's no actual regret or attempt for you know restitution or making things that is a really important like that third step is one that until i met you i hadn't heard before i went yeah that was the missing step that we need to have more in life and society and it's hard i mean it's yeah. it's so easy when i was a kid you know you'd mess up at school or you'd whatever. And they'd be like, say, you're sorry. And the other kid would say, I'm sorry. And then when I went to a, a private Christian school, so the other kid was responsible for saying, I forgive you, which I hate. I hate. Oh my God. Don't tell me you fucking forgive me because that's not cool. You're not God. Like it would just, it would set me off. And also like, I would have to say that to people when they would say they're sorry. And I'd be like, I don't actually forgive you, but I'm being told that this is how I have to respond. It's like this mm -hmm. little song and dance. I hated it so much. Apologies have to be felt. And it's hard to, to actually acknowledge and say, I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings with my words. How, you know, I said something hurtful. How can I make it better? Because otherwise you're just like, sorry, and you just move on. And, and, and it doesn't matter. Those are empty words, empty words. It's hard to apologize. It is. I had to apologize to somebody recently and she listens to this podcast. So she knows, but she told me that I had hurt her feelings months ago, months ago. And I'm a fucking goldfish. And I did not realize that I had hurt her. I didn't, I don't actually remember doing the thing. I believe her because she's a trustworthy person and it totally set it's on brand for me. And it was unintentionally hurtful and it hurt her feelings. And when she finally told me about it, I was horrified and I apologized profusely. And I'm still like struggling with it because like it's in my heart now that I hurt her so badly. And I, there's mm -hmm. nothing I can do except continue to be a better friend now, you know, and, and keep trying to make things better and let her know that I do value her. I don't think there's a single person who hasn't had that. Oh, Jesus, I was an asshole. Mm -hmm. And how do I not be that person? How do I you know, make amends to this friend. Right. And yeah. amends is, a, is an important part. And we, yeah, because I've done that where I was like, oh shit, I was, I thought I was being funny or teasing or joking and I was being hurtful. Damn it. Damn it. And sadly, we don't really see. I, okay. So the most amends that we get, just to bring it back to this book, mm. is Annie giving <laughs> Bone this birth certificate that no longer says illegitimate. Okay. As amends go, I understand the sim symbolism for Annie. Yeah, that was her issue. It wasn't Bones' issue. Yes, it was like, what? This is. Oh, gee, thanks, mom. Thanks, mom. That your personal mission. What? Like, who cares? Like, Bone never cared. You know what? It would have been a nice amend. Here's the contact information for your father. That grandma ran out of town. Here's his people in Savannah. Go. You know. Now you. You know. Here's access to this whole missing part because he didn't die. Bone's father didn't die. And he, he wasn't a horrible, he was a dark eyed man who seduced a 15 year old girl in the fifties. So, I mean, yeah, it's, so gross. I don't know I know. it's, it's gross. It's gross. It's gross. I, I'm not saying it's not, but, and then grandma ran him out of town. Okay. 
but there might be other, there might, okay, here's the thing. He might be a loser. He might be a statutory rapist, awful person who seduces 15 year old girls. Probably, yes. But he also probably has sisters and maybe brothers and maybe a mom. When I finally got up the courage to interact with my biological father after years and years of years of like vaguely knowing he was there and having a complicated relationship with my own thoughts, whatever, I suddenly had this moment where I realized that he had a family. So it wasn't just him that I was choosing to have contact with or not. I had a grandmother and a great grandmother and aunts and uncles and cousins. And like, it was really freaking mind blowing to think of these other people, not just the main actor in the, in the drama, right? And so what Annie could have done is given Bone access to another family who might love her. They might not, they might all be Cretans, who knows, but they might not. But no, instead she gives her this birth certificate that Bone never asked for or cared about. Fuck you, Annie. <laughs> so um, just throwing this out that this is another interpretation of Annie's final choice to leave with Glenn is this is a way to keep Glenn away from Bone. Yeah, you know what better way to keep Glenn away from Bone? Six feet deep. Thank you to Uncle Earl. I agree. I'm just saying that this is another way of interpreting that ending. Just, it's just a selfish out way. Because, <laughs> well, I mean, she's hanging out with, you know, the person who cheated on her with her daughter by raping her. And that's kind of a weird thing. It's like a lot of these guys, you know, a lot of the uncles, oh, yeah, you know, he's just going to be a cheater. That's what they do. And the women kind of tolerate it, turn a blind eye, go, whatever. Boys will be boys. That's healthy. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, we're talking about a family's sort of systematic way of, of being abusive, of teaching the acceptance of abuse, of the acceptance of less than what you deserve as a human with, with you know, dignity. Well, so, the acceptance of these, these gender roles that keep you trapped. The women are yeah. very trapped. They have no freedom. They just get pregnant, 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 and babies. And Well, the other thing that gets me about when Glenn and Anne start uh, kind of contemplating the, the marriage is how ironic their thought processes are. Because Glenn's looking at Annie's brothers going, wow, they, they're like the alpha males. I want to be part of this group because I'll raise my social standing. And there's Annie going, yeah, he's going to be a really good father. And my daughters need that. And the irony of that is like afterwards, oh, I married this low class woman and my father is going to continue to forever hate me. Because mm -hmm. that's his own hole in his world is he doesn't have the love and acceptance of his father and then what he does to bone so the irony of that is, is is so brutal yeah and not to make any excuses for glenn's you know things but the knowing that he there was this pathology there too of him trying his bad relationship with his father informed his other bad decisions not an excuse just a context of it and annie's desperation they're like you can't not be married annie you're like almost 25 holy crap you're getting too old like you have to get married you need a man to take care of you i think acknowledging like where something comes from is an excuse it's saying this is you know you're responsible for your behavior but this is the context of why you made the choices right. that you did and talk about guilt and and context too earl is the one who introduced glenn to annie I, you know, so there's, there's definitely from Earl's again, Earl will, Earl wants to kill Glenn and I would like to watch Earl kill Glenn um, because there's a responsibility there too. Like he put those wheels in motion. I don't think Earl would ever feel responsible for that, but it's just, you, you attacked one of mine. 
And so you're going to get it. No, I feel like he would feel a midge of responsibility, especially because like he almost tried to talk Annie out of the marriage. You know, he was kind of like, are you sure? Like, you know, I some violence going on. Yeah. Not our kind of violence, because there was a big thing that that Glenn didn't drink for the first, you know, half of whatever until until they were established, until his life was starting to go down and he was having his anger issues. And then the drinking made it worse, but he didn't drink at the beginning. And Earl was kind of like, I don't trust a man who doesn't drink, you know, because it's he's very different from us. And then he started to drink and then the anger became even worse you know there is kind of that thing is that you don't know somebody until you see them you know whatever x like you don't see them until they're you know really sick you don't see them until they're in a really bad position and that's when you find out where the rare real character of a person lies how how somebody deals with lost luggage a bad service at a restaurant and forgetting their umbrella I think my mom told me those are like the three things like, <laughs> that will tell you. So, oh, and how they treat their parents, I think was like another thing, but like something along those lines, you know, like these are the things you have no control. Do you just accept that you're going to get wet? Do you bitch and moan? Do you like yell at the airport? Like, you know, how do you react under stress? I know I've told this story before, but when, when Matthew and I were dating, I had to pick a fight to see how, how he dealt with anger, like how he dealt when he got mad. And I was a royal bitch to him for a significant portion of a day to get him it took a while to get him mad because I needed to see from my own self-preservation like is he a yeller is he a hitter is he a quitter is he a you know what is he gonna do and there's Matt's perspective going well that's my crazy (laughs) ex-girlfriend no I mean thankfully once once I kind of saw it and then see then I explained what I was doing then he was then he was actually mad again (laughs) because it's really manipulative it is but he understood (laughs) the idea like the self-preservation like I've had people be violent and you need to know that earlier. Like I'd rather know early. And I was like, I am safe right now. And if it's bad, I can leave. Like I'm not as emotionally invested. I can cut the cord and I need to be able to do that. So he understands now. Now it's kind of one of those things, you know, part of our, whatever, our story. You're in jokes and yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I've never done it again, but it, it is a thing, you know, you need to know how people react in situations and, well, that's uh, the thing about, Ugh. it's not how the person treats you, it's how they treat the waiter. How do they treat somebody that they don't want to cater in their lives? Right, who they're not trying to impress. Yeah, who don't, who doesn't have any power over them, mm-hmm. other than they might mess with your food. Yeah, how do they treat the waiter after the food's come? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, speaking of Glenn and his toxic masculinity, can we talk about Annie getting dolled up and uh, hitting the town in order to raise money to feed the children. So when I was reading this in the class, like the teacher almost didn't want to think that she was a prostitute because we like Annie and the rest of us were like, no, she just totally prostituted herself. And that is kind of a double fuck you to Glenn of Mm -hmm. you can't take care of your kids and I am stepping out. You know what I'm going to do. Yeah, not subtle. I'm putting on this lipstick. I'm putting on these shoes. I'm like literally looking at you and saying, what are you going to do about it? I was terrified he was going to beat the shit out of the kids while she was gone or bone specifically, but he didn't. Yeah. Thank goodness. But yeah, then she comes home and feeds them and, and it's hard to even eat all the food. And yeah. And the kids, they like, it seems bone knows what happened. Mm-hmm. Even at a very young age, she is, uh, you know, seen a l- way too much for somebody her age. Yeah, I kept forgetting how young she was because the book is very slow. We go from Bone being seven to Bone being 12, maybe, maybe. 
I'm going to be tw 13 in May, she says at one point towards the end. So she's 12, but like it is, it's a, and I kept thinking, no, we're, we've got to be skipping ahead in a couple of years, right? She has to be older now. My, my brain, my heart kept trying to make her older. Not that it's less traumatic, but just, I needed to, her to be significantly older than my daughter. <laughs> as I was reading this book. <laughs> you know, the way she talks, like the mother's like, this is how you make a good, you know, set of eggs. And there's bone listening to this. And it kind of, it reminded me of this person who was telling the story about when she was raped and the next morning she woke up and made the eggs for her rapist. And since then, eggs were always a trigger for her. It reminded her of that, that, you know, shame, the lack of power, the, the shock that she was going through. And so I, I always wondered if uh, for Dorothy Allison, if that was something that stayed with her of, you know, my mom had to go do this to feed us. My mom did this, this shaming, horrible thing. And is that like always going to be something like she eats eggs? She thinks about the time her mom had to prostitute herself. Yeah. 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 No, for sure. And there's the mom doing her best and trying to give her kids like this extra luxury, but it's such a painful thing. Like, you can't enjoy it. You can't enjoy it knowing the cost. The cost is too high. Yeah. And, and then it's like so much that they're going to get sick by eating all of this food, you know? Yeah. yeah. That was another thing they really downplayed in the movie was their hunger, uh, the poverty of the girls and, and being so hungry. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting in the novel when she talked about being a ghost because they kept moving and moving and moving and that lack of security of never knowing where you're staying and living out of boxes. She didn't feel real anymore. Yeah. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's something that almost children have to deal with. And it sets up a, a lot of lifelong trauma of having that insecurity at a young age. Did you want to talk about the hook? Yeah, let's, let's talk about the hook. So they find it in the river. Yeah, because I also want to talk about sexuality and it kind of goes into it. So there we go. The hook and sexuality. So they find this hook in the river. I had a hard time picturing it because I had a hard time picturing it. There was like multiple ends and it was like, it's like a river, like a dragger thing mm -hmm. for, for bodies and stuff. But it was big and it had a big chain on it. And, you know, it was big and dangerous and dark and thrilling. It's not dagger shaped for, well, anything looks like a penis if you look at it long enough. It's it's really not penis shaped. <laughs> no, it's not penis shaped, but it is also very masculine and it's and violent. But I don't know that masculine would be the term because it's a hook. You know, it's not that same masculine penetrative thing. Well, it's not penetrative in like the go inside and God, wow, this is this podcast, man. But it does <laughs> the whole the whole use of a hook is to penetrate, to penetrate, to hold on, and to drag right? Like it, it, it mm -hmm. anchors and you have to have some level of penetration into anchoring because it's it is something much more attuned with her anger. Yes. No, I mean, it's a violent sort of thing because it is used to drag like bodies and, and this very specific type of work in the river and this destructive component, you know, it's not a nurturing hook, mm -hmm. you know, this isn't a fish hook that's going to maybe kill something to feed you. This thing is um, utilitarian and industrial to destroy. D does that make sense? It's yes. Yeah. So anyways, they, they find it, they clean it. She hides it. The aunt doesn't want them playing with it. It's very sharp. 
and the, the the cousins throw it up on the on the roof kind of in the house on the roof and then use it to kind of like scale up the wall and stuff and the aunt is like horrified because there's holes in the house which is hilarious and then and then bone has this idea to use it to get into the Woolworths but before that she masturbates with it which is not the only time we hear about bones masturbatory habits but her masturbation is very masochistic she yes. about being hurt about being beaten about being lit on fire about being trapped all of these things that you know i don't think you need a psychology degree to connect to the abuse and the feeling of trapped and violence and cycles of that in her life this is a very difficult thing that some people who have been raped feel is they orgasm and that doesn't make it any less of a rape it's a way for your brain and your body to kind of try to psychologically protect you because you're going through something horrific and that's a lot of what she's going through it's it's her her body trying to contextualize something that is really horrific and damaging so there is a book called precious push precious was written by precious do you know what i'm talking about yeah it's a push a push thank you um and i have an article which i will link to in our show notes which is comparing the the sexuality of bone and of sapphire the girl in precious talking about how they view their sexual assault and in that particular book and movie uh she does orgasm when her father is raping her and she is horrified by it but also like it's part of the pathology that makes it so shameful and and all of these things and it is a well done essay talking about shame and how we deal with uh, women's responses to rape i will make sure to link to that there's just something about bones anger that makes the hook like a perfect weapon for her you know it, it feels like a knife is a quick in and out you know you stab somebody and it's done but with the hook it stays in there and she has sort of this resentful anger that is completely earned, mm-hmm. but there's there's something about it that doesn't go away that she right. latches onto and she keeps. Yeah, her abuse has its hooks in her. And I thought the ending of the novel, like towards the end, she talks about, you know, oh, they're dealing with me like I'm this fragile thing. And she is full of rage and angry and bitter and sort of past coddling at that point. You know, obviously she she needs a lot of uh, therapy and whatnot, but the way that people expect to deal with somebody who's been raped is not who she is. Mm-hmm. She's just gone through too much of it for too long. Right. Yeah, she's not fragile, definitely. I would say fragile might not be the right word, but in a way it is. She's like, to me, broken glass. I would say brittle, maybe. Yeah. It's very sharp. It's very painful. It's dangerous. So, yeah. They they left in the movie. They left out her friend. The uh, Opal. Yeah. The little weird albino bespeckled child who died in a fiery explosion. Ah. Yeah. And that's a weird thing is if it was suicide or not. Yeah. And I... I kind of feel like maybe that's there. First of all, we always have hierarchical systems. Like even if you're at the bottom, you want to be higher than somebody else. And this element of meanness, this is how Bone could act out. She could be mean to this girl. You know, she's not going to be mean to her sister. She's not going to be mean to her cousins. But again, with that outsider, she didn't have any qualms. And then the idea too, though, like that this other girl had this outward physical manifestation of ugliness and Mm -hmm. everybody kept telling her how ugly she was 
And Glenn definitely has this streak of ugliness on the inside, you know, um, where it's not as a parent. And so I think that was like an interesting dichotomy. And what was Opal's options? You know, she didn't like her life. She was alone. She was lonely. She wasn't loved or she was overloved by her. You know, it was complicated and traumatic too. And so whether or not it was an accident or suicide, I feel like that was there to teach bone that like you know sometimes there's power in surrender but you don't want to go that way you know i feel like it was a warning to her she was an interesting character to me because we usually get the contrast between somebody who is an attractive outside character but a horrible inner character like glenn Mm -hmm. Uh, and pearl was not a, a juxtaposition at all she was kind of measly and awful looking on the outside and kind of measly and awful on the inside but wasn't she awful on the inside because everybody had been so awful to her on the outside well you know their their breaking moment was when she was like yeah but they're black we don't deal with black gospel players yeah again with that hierarchical system like even if i'm on the bottom i gotta be above somebody else yeah and it doesn't matter that they're incredibly talented or the character of these people nothing is like yeah but they're black and that automatic caste system that is there Mm -hmm. and that disgust that she had for them which you know of all people to be disgusted so yeah it's possible that pearl would be a very different person if she had a different environment you can say that about a lot of people but sometimes that's just who the person is too fair yep and then she went boom (laughs) out of all the things that they needed to cut down for movie time i thought that was a good choice yeah no i'm 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 cool with that it didn't add too terribly much to the movie at all i yeah it didn't add much to the book for or me the book, it was, i meant yeah, yeah sorry, it was kind story. of just this longest sort of okay we're getting into the pearl part <laughs> and yeah. so if you're and the gospel part i i was like i was real ready for bone to get over her gospel thing that was to me kind of the most unusual part of glenn where he really hated her singing but the worst he ever did was just you really suck and that was it. it it never crossed that point of being abusive it was just oh shut up with the god right well okay. and again maybe it's because she's singing gospel that's like god stuff or maybe it's because her sister was also kind of there and her mama and her and her aunt and like it was but there's also this this part i can't remember if it oh no actually it's in my research for the next book that we're doing sorry (laughs) um but they talk about how before when people had don't didn't have televisions and radios and all people had radios but like there's always been music people have sang they sing in the fields they sing as they walk down the streets they sing as they do chores like women just sang, and you didn't have to have a good voice people just sang people just vocalized Mm -hmm all the time and so even if somebody was awful like or couldn't carry a tune in a bucket as they say it's just part of the cacophony of sound of living with people is that someone's singing somewhere so you know there could have been a little bit of that for me traveling to different areas of the world it's always been kind of shocking how free people are with singing Mm -hmm. and here it's this kind of a shame thing if you can't do it well then don't do it unless you're me (laughs) <laughs> well yeah but you sing well you know how to oh, sing well i sing loud not always <laughs> there's a difference <laughs> but yeah just being in ireland they'll they'll go into a pub song i'm like wow you guys actually do sing here this is <laughs> i i feel like pulling out my anthropologist pith helmet and taking notes <laughs> <laughs> you know and i i think that my 
personal, like, okay, can we get past this? It's because I knew it wasn't going to help, you know, losing yourself in gospel music isn't going to save you. Even I remember the first time I read this book, I knew that that wasn't where her salvation and freedom and safety was going to come from. Maybe that's my jaded baggage with Christianity and churches. I don't know. But it was like, okay, she's obsessed with this for a little while. She's looking for something. It's symbolic. I get it. But I'm ready to move on so that we can get to the things. The well, other for things. you, you're, you're also reading this at a much different point in your life where, you know, she's young, she's looking for oh, yeah. something. No, and, and I get why it's yeah. there. I just, as a reader, I was like, okay, I'm yeah. kind of ready to move on. Like you said that the Pearl part, you were like, eh, and I was like, oh, okay. That reminds me when we read White or Leander and, you know, when I think you had the reaction when you first read it, you know, you felt bad for one of the guys. He's just like, oh, it's just some guy who's interested in her. And then when you were a couple of years older, you're like, oh my God, what a fucking creep that he is showing his attraction to this little teenage girl. Oh yeah, I don't remember. Sorry. I'm a goldfish. Okay, well, we're going to have to read that for a later episode. Yeah, we will. We'll have to reread it for next year's Mother's Day. Uh, I just want to talk about something with the movie. Uh, okay. Jenna Malone is a very interesting young actress, and she is a phenomenal actress in this film. Mm -hmm. uh, she did some very unusual roles, and she's played a lot of darker stuff. And so she prepared for this at the age of 12 by reading the novel. You know, it, I, I've had this discussion before with people, and I'm I'm always on the fence of this one. If you have an actress playing, a, a young actress playing a role that is fairly adult or has adult situations, like Kirsten Dunst in Interview with the Vampire, or um, if you have an actress playing Lolita, uh, The Professional was another one where you have a young girl dressing as trying to be seductive at some point. You know, is this ethical? to put young actresses through. Uh, Jodie Foster's another famous example of that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can weigh in. I do think that 12 is a difficult age to read this book. That gets into the question of, should this be you know, in high school and in college reading? I saw that there's a bunch of conversations about, it was in the library at my high school that's where I picked this book up. And again, like I said, I didn't finish it because I was like, no, this is, this is making me uncomfortable, but it was available. You know, um, it was there and there is a push for it to be in the curriculum in high school as a choice, not required, but as a choice, which I think is a good distinction because there's a lot of books in the canon of American literature that are a lot, I mean, and it's changing now it's 2020, but I know in the late nineties and in the early aughts, it was, I mean, in the eighties for a long time, it was like white dudes. It was, you know, the Scarlet letter and the great Gatsby Lord of the fly. You know what I mean? There's a couple mm -hmm. of like these major things and they're all very male centric and they're not really about American experience outside of a white dude who often had money kind of a situation. So I feel like in that way, this is a very important book and that should be out there. 12 hard though. <laughs> it is It is really hard. I like having it as an option because I can see for one person that this could open up a whole lot of trauma and another person needs to have the context mm -hmm. to put their own lives in a narrative that is more understandable. Mm -hmm. Then there are the readers who's like, okay, you're, you're kind of a brain dead little teenager who doesn't have a lot of experience and you need to know this sort of stuff exists and how to deal with it in a sensitive manner. Right. So I, I can see a couple different readers that this would be a very important book 
book four. Uh, yeah, and then I mean, I, I we both read it in college for classes. I think that's very interesting too. I don't. That's good. I think that this is one of those books that should be taught in at the college level, especially if you're getting a degree in English. <laughs> yeah, and we both originally came to the book independently, where mm -hmm. you know we kind of found out about the book and read it or tried to read it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and then you know had to revisit it later for whatever reasons. Yeah, for sure. So I don't have an answer for your whether or not it's ethical to put actors. I think that there are stories that are important to be told. And unfortunately, you know, sock puppets don't work as well as actors. So, you know, it we need we need actors. Uh, and so then you get into the idea of context, right? Like if you're like, okay, in this scene, this is going to happen, but you don't give them the book or the, the context, is that more traumatic or less traumatic? Because it's like a la carte versus understanding the whole thing. So I'm actually glad that she did read the book at age 12, because I feel like it informs so much of it. At the same time, like, I, you know, obviously she opted in, hope, well, mm -hmm. or her parents, I mean, now we can the child acting issues, but like, so there was an opting in, it wasn't a, you have to at age 12, read this and then act this out. So just as a little side note, uh, Jenna Malone was always very happy to have two mothers. She has this little thing in an interview where it seemed like everyone liked their mother more than their father because the father's usually the disciplinarian. And so her response was, haha, I have to. <laughs> That's and so, cool. yeah, I mean, it, it does give her a lot more understanding of what's going on with the aunts. And yeah, so we didn't really talk about it, but there's there's a lesbian aunt and Dorothy Allison herself is a lesbian. And there is there are ways you can read this book where her fascination with Pearl is is lesbianic is that a word i don't know i am very wary of that because yes it is semi-autobiographical and dorothy ellison identifies as a lesbian for sure so got it i understand but there's this thing <laughs> where people become gay or lesbian or queer or whatever because of sexual trauma and that is a trope that we need to avoid and so yeah. it is her it relationship is with pearl struck me as not at all romantic interest so i see that you know it's possible to read that it's i it didn't occur to me while i was reading it that that was a thing it, it just struck me as we don't really like each other but we're both kind of outcasts and so we'll hang out together because we don't have that many options i mean as a queer person that is how i met queer people in high school and college though mm -hmm. we are the outcast weirdos so even though we have nothing else in common but this one thing, at least we have this one thing. So I, I can see the reading both ways. I don't know how Dorothy Allison meant it. I don't know. And not to say that every time you as a queer person have a friend, you like it's a queer relationship. You know, it's not. It struck me as something that happened a lot when I was in high school of we don't really like each other, but we live near each other and we don't get to pick our friends because we don't have cars. We don't have the ability to travel. Right. This is our set circle. So you're tolerable enough for now. And then when I'm an adult and I can drive an hour to go meet somebody I actually like. Right. But yeah, I, I just want to, you know, the caveat here of, of this queer character is that she was not lesbian because of the abuse from Glenn. Yeah. Nope. No, nope. that's an important note. And so sometimes that's why we have to say, okay, here's a, not one that we agree with, but here's another reading of it. Right. And sometimes that works for people with this one. As I said, for me, the relationship with Pearl was more out of necessity, not that they really right. genuinely liked each other. Jennifer, was this book worth your time? Was this movie worth your time? Totally read the book. If you can find the movie, it is a good film. It is a difficult film. 
Yes, I agree. This book is super worth it. I would read this book. I, you know what, honestly, I don't think you need to see the film. I'm glad it was made because I think it was like important, especially because then the controversy happened and it kind of got on people's radars in a way that it should. I wish that it had been made not by a TV studio, but but about a major motion picture studio. I think it could have done better there. Yeah, it wouldn't be stuck in distribution hell right now. Exactly. But because it was, because it was a made-for-TV movie, I, you know, the acting is good. And I just, we didn't talk about it, but I'm going to just say it real fast. The, the casting... We have Jennifer Jason Lee. We have Ron Elder. I don't know if you know who who he is, but he's been in a bunch of stuff. We've got uh, he was he was a bad guy on ER. We have Glenn Heedley. Well, he was originally a good guy, and then he got I think addicted to painkillers or something. No, he had anger management issues, yeah. and he was an asshole. <clears throat> anyway, Shock. yeah, uh, typecasting. We have uh, Glenn Headley, who we uh, who died in 2017, much too young. Freaking Lyle Lovett as Wade, one of the uncles. <laughs> Just... I want to say something quick about Lyle Lovett. Oh, me too. Me too. What's your Lyle Lovett thing? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he was in Sling Blade and he had a line that was probably the smartest like movie line I've ever heard about abuse. Okay. So the, the woman was staying with this abusive guy and she's staying with him because of the good times and she's kind of waiting for the bad times not to be that anymore like she's staying with him because of the good points and so when you look at like abusive cycles it's not that women want to be abused you know sometimes people are trapped in in behaviors that have been taught but also a lot of the common refrain is i see what he could potentially be even if that's not real mm. and so he has some lyle lovett as a person has some very interesting intelligent things to say um, about relationships in that regard okay here's my lyle lovett and this is also because I read those listener feedbacks. Are you ready for your, we need a jingle. Are you ready for your, this is connected to Star Trek moment. <laughs> dun, dun. Okay. Our Star Trek connection here is Lyle Lovett based. So Lyle Lovett was offered a part on Deep Space Nine, but he respectfully declined. <laughs> okay um i'm trying to figure out which part he was offered a uh, google is not not helping me and um, i've reached out to some of my star trek fans but i haven't heard back so maybe by the time this airs i will be able to put a little addendum in and be like this is the role and how crazy is that our other star trek connection though is jennifer jason lee as a child her family was friends with leonard nimoy he came to her house a lot but Star Trek's not really her thing. She was more interested in the Partridge family, but she knew Leonard Nimoy as a child. So I thought that's kind of cool. And Lyle Lovett could have been on freaking Deep Space Nine. And I can't, I'm trying so hard to imagine who he would have been on He's Deep Space Nine. He's got a very Nine. interesting face. Yeah. I remember when Julia Roberts married him and everyone's like, him? But if you see him on interviews, he's he's an interesting person. I will tell you that as I wrote up all my recap and did all my research, I listened to uh, Spotify Lyle Lovett. And it was a nice little uh, an hour and a half or so of uh, Lyle Lovett music. So maybe I'll link my little Lyle Lovett playlist. But yeah, so um, I would I would recommend interviews with him because he, he does interesting interviews. He, he's not just he's not just an interesting face. Yeah, more than a face. Anyways, yes, this book was great. I'm conflicted on the movie. It's so hard to get to that, you know, I would say if you read the book, you get the basic story and you get so much more because her Dorothy Allison's writing is amazing. And Dorothy Allison is amazing. Yes, definitely. She's a very giving writer. 
Yes. The movie basically gives you the visuals of what happens in the book. So if you, if you need that, then, then sure. But I would say definitely, if you're going to pick, read the book and uh, it's, it's well, well worth your time. Yeah. And again, props to Angelica Houston for not pulling punches. Yeah. And refusing to edit out the scenes because. Yeah. This is her first, uh, this is her directorial debut. NPR did say that this was the best TV movie of the year when it came out. I'm not really sure what it was <laughs> up against, up against, but yeah. And I'm going to leave us now with the dedication in the book, the quote that Allison uses, which is this, this is our final thought. People pay for what they do and still more for what they have allowed themselves to become. And they pay for it simply by the lives they lead. Thank you for joining us for Pages and Popcorn podcast and our episode on Bastard of Carolina. As I said before, you can reach us at Pages and Popcorn podcast at gmail.com. Come to our pop-in event on the last Monday of the month at 7 o'clock p.m. on Zoom. Tell us your thoughts on this movie. Did you read it? Have you seen the movie? Yeah. Do you, do you think that this should be a book that people read in college or high school or in their 30s for book club? Uh, let us know. All right. Thank you. Thank you. I was just listening to an interview with the author. Cool. Now, you did get to meet her at some point, didn't you? I did. Yes, I met her at a writer's conference in San Francisco more than 10 years ago. (laughs) Uh, She was a keynote speaker and she talked about, she led a session, a breakout session on censorship. And she was fascinating and very generous with her time. And I got to shake her hand and I did not have my copy of Bastard out of Carolina with me, unfortunately. So I didn't get her signature, but she asked me if I was a writer and I said, yes. And I happened to have a copy of my short story collection. And she said that she would be happy to read it. And then she made me sign it and made me feel very special. And I have no idea. I mean, she could have just left it in the hotel. I have no idea if she actually did anything with it or ever read it, but it made me feel really special for those couple of minutes. Yeah, that's really cool.